You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. Oh my gosh, how is it Monday again? What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave Traub. And I'm Jay Sisson. And over the next 15 minutes, our mission is simple. Your life is far too short and far too important to waste any of your time. So we want to take this time in the car or take this time with whatever you're doing to make you more interesting. And before we get too far along, I'd like to take this opportunity on the front end to ask you to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. It helps us out tremendously, and we always love to get your feedback on what you like and what you didn't like, maybe on a past episode of Commute. On this week's episode, how much is two seconds worth? And why did everyone stop asking Jeeves? And then we'll take a ride on the Oregon Trail. All of that on this episode of Commute, the podcast. Let's get to it. All right, so Jay, uh, golf. Do you play golf? I've known you forever, so I know your family tends to stick to what your your dad lovingly calls goofy golf, right? So putt-putt. Yeah, I've kind of danced... Uh, around the game of golf for my entire life. It's been something that I've, I admire and I've always wanted to play, but it's just, I don't know. I can't explain really why, but I just haven't really capitalized on the opportunity to play. Well, golf is one of those things that it's really hard to be good at and it will expose you quickly, violently, and in a very embarrassing way if you're not good at it. So I don't blame you if you never start playing. But Jay, this story is a tale about risk, reward, and an incredibly profitable two seconds. Okay, so I'll start by saying that I've always been a fan of Tiger Woods. And I have to begin this story by acknowledging the current situation that Tiger finds himself in. So he was recently in a car wreck, pretty serious one, and is rehabbing the effects of broken bones and the process of healing post-surgery. Will we see him ever play golf again? I really think it's too soon to say at this point, but regardless... You can't argue with the fact that Tiger will go down as one of the greatest, most famous, and most profitable athletes of all time. So as a kid, I'd make it a point to watch Tiger on Sundays especially. His legendary red Nike polo on full display as he annihilated the competition. I played the Tiger Woods video game. I wore the Nike golf shoes. And as a major fan of sports, Tiger was an athletic god to me. Then, 2009 happened. Tiger's marital problems were on full display for the world to, rightfully so, condemn. His life has always been on the front page, but 2009 told a different, darker story about a guy that we all thought we knew. And then the injuries started to pile up. Non-stop back issues, multiple surgeries. Really, all of us wondered that had followed Tiger's career, was he done? Was the mental stress of his family issues mixed with the physical toll of an aging body just simply too much for him to recover from? Well, Jay, at the 2019 Masters Golf Tournament, so this is 11 years after Tiger's latest major golf victory, Tiger, wearing the customary Sunday red polo, was in contention. I remember watching this just in awe, thinking, is this actually happening? Next thing I knew, Tiger had raised his arms in victory, hugged his son Charlie, and Jay Nike went straight to the bank. 
So the Apex Marketing Group found that Tiger's two-second putt for victory on the 18th hole earned Nike an estimated $22.5 million in advertising revenue. Their logos plastered all over the triumphant scene. Nike's somewhat controversial decision to stick by Woods through all the ups and downs, actually signing him to a $200 million deal in 2013, right in the midst of the slump, was not only justified by this putt, but applauded within the advertising community. Jay Nike rolled the dice, and its reported money earned during that winning putt, so get this, equaled the total brand value during the entire coverage of Tiger's latest round. So think about Tiger on TV nonstop. He's got Nike gear all over the place. Those two seconds were more profitable. Seeing a human sort of do something at the highest level, you know, that'll never get old. And so someone like Tiger, we've seen him do this at the highest level, then we've seen his lowest low, and then to see him go to the highest level again, I think that's really the, that's the sweet spot. You know, that's what makes it such a fascinating story and, and really pushes this kind of marketing uh, benefit that Nike got just to these like astronomical levels. So Dave, when you think about search engines today, only really one name comes to mind, and that's Google. But that wasn't always the case. Yeah, and I have this distinct memory. So, you know, you and I are really of the internet age. We we still remember a time, we're both in our 30s, where the internet really wasn't a thing. We didn't use the internet. When I was, I think, 7th, 8th grade, we had computer class. I think it was actually called typing class, which is really funny. We would have like 15 minutes to go search the internet for something, and we could use whatever search engine we wanted. There wasn't a recommendation. And I found myself using like Dogpile, if you remember Dogpile. I do remember Dogpile. Or or Bing in the early days of Bing, which is trash. And then there's also Ask Jeeves, which never gave me the results I wanted. I just thought it was kind of cool. Well, I'm glad you brought up Ask Jeeves, because that's going to be what we talk about here today, because it's such a weird story, uh, and I kind of love it. So (laughs) In a a weird name. (laughs) (laughs) So. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you first through the history of Ask Jeeves, and then I'm gonna walk you through why they didn't work, and then what can we learn from Ask Jeeves. The website Ask Jeeves uh, launched in 1996 to 1997, and uh, nobody really knows where they got their iconic character, but there is a clue. Uh, in the P.J. Wodehouse series of novels, there is a butler named Reginald Jeeves who looks very like strikingly similar to Jeeves, so much so that Ask Jeeves was actually sued by P.G. Wodehouse, and uh, they reached a non-disclosure agreement. So maybe you'll talk about this, but who who owned it? What was the a parent company? So Ask Jeeves was created by entrepreneurs, like a lot of these early search engines of the mid-2000s. Because like you mentioned, there was it, it was a it was the Wild West back then when you're talking about search engines. You had Google, you had Yahoo, you had uh, Webcrawler, you had Ask Jeeves, you had Dogpile, you had all these different sites, and they were all competing for the same thing. Ask Jeeves started and launched uh, as a company with $14 a share. And at their height, they reached $190.50 a share. So that is a meteoric rise. So what happened? Well, for some, for some reason, I thought you were going to say at their height, they reached $15 a share. <laughs> uh, so, so what happened? Well, 
By 2000, they were a top 25 trafficked site. Uh, they had a million users a day. I don't even know if you remember this or not. Probably not. But they even had a float of Jeeves in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade one year. <laughs> the only, the earliest confirmed internet character to have a balloon in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. But by 2002, the uh, stock was worth a whopping 86 cents a share. So that is a steep drop-off from 190.50. So what happened? Well, uh, in 2001, the internet bubble burst. So Ask Jeeves was a casualty of that. In that year, they had a $425 million loss. They were kind of also part of just this kind of what we just referenced, what internet historians call the search engine wars, where you can't really sustain, you know, seven search engines that people are using. Eventually, people are going to land on one that they think works the best. And one of the problems for Ask Jeeves is it didn't really work like the other ones. You know, Ask Jeeves was intended to be a site where primarily you were asking questions. What they envisioned when they created the site is that you would come on and you would type in how do I change the oil in my car? And you're not always asking a question when you go to a search. And so Google, you know, when you think about a search engine, the page hasn't changed much over the years. It's just a bar, right? But what goes behind that bar has tra- changed drastically. The way that the algorithms have evolved and changed to get you certain results, it has just gone complete overhaul every year and has gotten better and better. And so you find yourself, if you go to Google, you type something in, you know, you're probably only going to hang out on the first couple pages. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever ventured past the third or fourth page on a Google search before, but Ask Jeeves would kind of give you like page nine, page 10 material. You know, things would come up from message boards or things would come up from random people's blogs. You wouldn't get like real credible sources, but also too, like their goal didn't really fit with what people want from a search engine. You know, their goal was to personify the search engine with a friendly, familiar face to kind of humanize it. So the idea was that, you know, you want to get a question answered. So instead of typing into just an emotionless bar that doesn't do anything back, the idea is you get to ask this like wise, friendly butler. Humans are humans. So ultimately, one out of five of every uh, searches on AskJeeves.com were for nude photos. But oh, that was at least the the goal, right, was to dignify the online search experience. So in 2004, the butler was briefly uh, not retired yet. They let him go on a quote-unquote world tour and eventually returned uh, after Ask Jeeves was bought by the Interactive Corporation for a cool $1.85 billion in the year 2005. So this company remodeled Ask Jeeves, dropped the Jeeves, relabeled themselves as Ask.com. On April 1st, 2005, they tried to do this weird reboot where Jeeves appeared again, but he wasn't a butler. He was the Jeeves 9000 robot. But eventually, Jeeves was retired. And today, if you go to ask.com, there's a little blurb deep on their website that explains why they retired him. But other than that, there is not a trace of Ask Jeeves. To me, Jeeves lives on in my heart because he is a memory of a simpler time in these early days of the internet where everything was fresh and everything was exciting. And, you know, everything was less uh, maybe terrifying than it is now. How dumb of a name is Dogpile, though, now that we're thinking about it? (laughs) I mean, what's that supposed to be? Is that a is that a pile of poop? I, I mean, real. I'm just asking. I, mean, I I really have no idea. 
All right, Jay. Sadly, Jay Sisson has died of dysentery. If I had a quarter for every time I saw that, I would, I'd be a rich man. Caulk the wagon. Don't ford the river. Make sure you shoot yourself some dinner. Jay, my fellow pioneer, we're talking about Oregon Trail. Surely you have an experience with this incredible game of survival. Yeah, there was a period in my life uh, where I was totally obsessed with Oregon Trail because it's so difficult. Like It's one of the most difficult games because there's so much long-term thinking and strategy that goes into it. There's a reason that everyone of a certain generation has seen, played, and died in the game with the computer game Oregon Trail. So where did it come from, and why does everyone know about it? So really quick, let's start here. A quick refresher on what Oregon Trail is. Okay, so in Oregon Trail, you are the leader of your wagon party. The other members, which you can name whatever you'd like, are along for the journey. You'll face floods, food shortages, disease, cue the dysentery, which Jay basically, I don't know if you knew this, it means you poop yourself to death. Can I, can I interrupt real quick and ask you, because I know you have an answer, what did you always name the other characters? Did you name them like your friends that you liked, your friends that you didn't like, or your family? I mean, what route did so you take? So it would always be like me, my current girlfriend, then, then there'd be like Mr. Fart, and, <laughs> and characters like that. So, so anyway, Jay, your, your group is headed to a new home, okay? So you're trying to make a new life on the frontier. So in 1971, that's where our story begins, three Minnesota public school teachers, Don Rowitz, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger, I probably butchered all three of those, created Oregon Trail. In the early 1970s, computers were mostly absent in the educational arena. In fact, the first game of Oregon Trail wasn't played on a computer monitor at all. It was created on what they call a teletypewriter which is as clunky as it sounds. It's an electromechanical typewriter that could communicate via phone line with a large mainframe computer. It was designed to help teach 8th grade children, this is Oregon Trail, about the realities of 19th century pioneer life. But a game that earns the title of longest published, most successful educational game of all time, Jay, it can't stay the same. It had to evolve. So in 1974, the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, you'll know them as MECC, an organization that developed educational software, hired Don Rowitz. Don reworked some code, you know, something I'm sure that was super easy to do, and put the game on all computers in the Minnesota school system. And the trailblazing and buffalo shooting and dying from the flu started to take off. By the late 70s, early 80s, the game had started to show up on Apple II computers that were being purchased by entire school districts around the country for their elementary schools. By 1995, the game comprised one-third of MECC's annual revenue, and as of 2015, 70 million games have been sold worldwide. 45 years after the creators sat down and created the original version of Oregon Trail, which took them two weeks, by the way, Oregon Trail is still a cultural landmark, and any school kid who came to age in the 1980s or after, really up until about 2003, know about Oregon Trail. 
I'm just glad that I was a part of the group of people who all got to kind of collectively experience this together. Uh, because, you know, every once in a while, you just kind of like have a common bond with people that are your same age, no matter what region you're from. And this just seems to be one of those things. But I am sorry to tell you that Mr. Fart died a very slow and grueling death of cholera just a couple <laughs> minutes ago. I'm sorry that I have to be the one to tell you. And that's it. Man, hopefully you learned something today. I know I did, and I'm going to be looking up some Ask Jeeves float pictures uh, as soon as I can. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show, and share it with somebody that you think may enjoy what we're doing on this podcast. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons, and for Jason, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Commute.